Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode three of three of fucking extreme ownership. The Bible of expert performance. With me, your host again, Troy Hongs and Lord Jocko, Leif Babin. Shit's been crazy. We introduce the principles. What is extreme ownership? What are some of the philosophies of, you know, no bad teams, only bad leaders? Check your ego. You got to communicate why. And then we walked into what are the laws of combat? We covered one and two, cover and move and simple. Now we're moving in straight preamble fucking done. Law of combat three, prioritize and execute. All day, murderous bursts of machine gun fire hammered our position, shattering windows and impacting interior walls, each round with the violence and kinetic energy of a sledgehammer wielded at full force. Think about that. Think of, you know, Greg Plitt doing a photo shoot with a, with a sledgehammer, but it's actually bullets. Some of the incoming rounds were armor-piercing and punched through the thick concrete of the low wall surrounding the rooftop. All our elements of SEALs, EOD bomb technicians and Iraqi soldiers, all they could do under such accurate enemy fire was hit the deck and try not to get our heads shot off. Rounds snapped inches above us and shards of glass and concrete fragments rained down everywhere. You know, I was actually recently kind of caught in a little bit of a rainstorm while, while wading in the Gulf of Mexico and I was kind of cold, so I totally understand. As the platoon commander in charge of the entire element, I made my way from room to room of each floor to get a status check and make sure none of our guys were hit. Long before dawn broke that morning, before the day's first call to prayer echoed from the minaret speakers, and I actually I YouTube this, so it sounds something like this. Something like that, basically. And it comes every day, morning and evening, and then you got to pray. Um, before that, a group, our group of Charlie Platoon SEALs, our EOD operators, an interpreter and Iraqi soldiers had stealthily foot patrolled under the cover of darkness through the dusty, rubble-strewn streets. We had BTF'd in, as our chief, Tony Afratti, called it. BTF stood for Big Tough Frogman, and basically just meant, like, just figure it out, bitch, because we're Big Tough Frogman. Our SEAL platoon had chosen this particular building for its commanding views of the area. Most important, it was right in the enemy's backyard. The onslaught of heavy enemy fire continued frequently throughout the day with periods of intense violence and periods of calm. With the darkness, an eerie quiet descended upon Ramadi, broken only by the evening call to prayer, which I'm not going to sing again, but you can go replay the previous one if you want to hear it, that echoed across the dusty rooftops. Our SEAL platoon and Iraqi soldiers packed our gear and prepared to depart. Remembering 
the vulnerability of the single exit of the street, our two EOD bomb technicians went to work. So basically, they walked in early as hell. Basically, we're like, let's go, let's go hide in their backyard and see what happens. And what happened was they they got they had to kill a lot of people and they got a lot of bullets shot at them. But they only had one entrance to this specific building. So as they're getting ready to leave, they're like, hey, let's check that entrance because you know, if you got one entrance in and out, and then, you know, the enemy knows that, and they sneak up and they plant a bomb, and then you go and, you know, all your people leave out that entrance, and then, boom, your whole squad gets blown up, that's not cool. So, the two bomb technicians go to work, but they're like, something's, something's not right. It looks different than when they'd first scanned the area in the early morning darkness before dawn. An otherwise unobtrusive item lay against the building wall, only feet from the exit door, covered with a plastic tarp. Just a tiny sliver of a smooth, cylindrical object peeked out from under the edge of the tarp. I called a huddle with our chief, our leading petty officer, and our platoon junior officers. We need to figure out another way out of here, I said. That was no easy task. Looks like it's time to BTF, said the LPO. It meant they were about to tackle another serious feat of strength and toughness. Let's get our sledgehammer on. So even though there was only one entrance, they're like, well, we're pretty sure they actually someone put an ID here. So we're just going to have to like hammer out an entrance out of the side of the wall. In the meantime, our EOD operators carefully went to work on the ID planted at our doorstep through meticulous investigation. They uncovered two 130mm rocket projectiles whose nose cones were packed with Semtex. Had they not discovered the device and had we triggered it, the massive explosion and deadly shrapnel could have wiped out half our platoon. So basically, they're like, hey, good thing we're being fucking safe because, uh, yeah, they actually did plant a bomb on the entrance. So good thing we sledgehammered another door out this other room. Uh, but then as they're trying to leave, and remember, like, this is a fucking active war zone. As they're trying to leave, suddenly, a seal moving along the edge of the rooftop just steps ahead of me, crashed through the roof, and fell 20 feet to the ground, landing hard with a smack on the concrete. Holy shit! Hey, are you alright? I asked him. There was no response. The seals up ahead immediately tried to find a way down to him, but the door to the only stairway leading down from the rooftop was blocked by a gate with heavy iron bars chained and locked. This was bad. Dreadfully exposed on a wide open rooftop with no cover, we were completely surrounded by higher, tactically superior positions in the heart of extremely dangerous enemy controlled area. So. You know, they just walked in, they had this fucking insane firefight all day, and then they, you know, try to leave, but they can't leave out that door because someone put a giant fucking bomb there. So they sledgehammer out this door, and then as they're going to do that, as they're like trying to do some parkour off the second story, one of their dudes falls through the roof, and now like, hey, that's, that's probably a loud noise. So now woke up the whole neighborhood. And they're all standing on the edge of a two-story roof with, you know, 20 buildings that are five stories. So, shit is bad. And um, we had to get a SEAL corpsman, our combat medic, to him immediately. But we could not even reach him without breaking through a locked iron gate to get to the street below. 
the massive pressure of the situation bore down on me. This was a hell of a dilemma, one that could overwhelm even the most competent leader. How could we possibly tackle so many problems at once? Prioritize and execute. I had to remain calm, step back from my immediate emotional reaction and determine the greatest priority for the team. Then rapidly direct the team to attack that priority. Once the wheels were in motion and the full resources of the team were engaged in that highest priority, I could then determine the next priority. So what he's basically saying is like, imagine you're that, you're in charge of the fucking team that is trying to sneak their way out, that just had the bomb, we just talked about the whole fucking shit. Think of all the different, very, very important things that need to happen. You gotta go, hey, did that dude break his neck? We need to tend to him right now. Like you could, it could be the difference between life and death if you get, get to him 30 seconds earlier. They also have to get out. They're on the second story. What the fuck is gonna happen? I had to remain calm. This process was not intuitive to most people, but could be learned, built upon, and greatly enhanced through many iterations of training. Here, I recognized their highest priority, and I gave the broad guidance to execute on that highest priority with the simple command, set security. Though I, like everyone else in our platoon, wanted desperately to help our wounded man lying in the street below, the best way for us to do that was by occupying the strongest tactical position to defend ourselves. So basically, like, first biggest thing is if everybody starts shooting at them, it doesn't matter that they got one wounded guy because they're all going to be wounded. So they say, priority one, set security. Second, the next priority, find a way down to get everyone off the exposed rooftop and get to our wounded man. Third, ensure a full head count of all personnel and confirm they had exited the building to a safe distance away from the imminent explosion because they're going to blow up this IED. And then basically like, yay, they did it. But he includes that to illustrate the principle, which is on the battlefield, countless problems compound in a snowball effect. Every challenge, complex in its own right, each demand attention. But a leader must remain calm and make the best decision possible. To do this, SEAL combat leaders utilize, prioritize, and execute. We verbalize this principle with the direction, relax, look around, make a call. When confronted with the enormity of operational plans and the intricate microterrain within those plans, it becomes easy to get lost in the details, to become sidetracked or lose focus on the bigger effort. It is crucial, particularly for the leaders at the top of the organization, to pull themselves off the firing line, step back, and engage in the strategic picture. So what that, what that basically is saying is, and ever since I came in contact with this prioritize and execute thing, like that's my new way of living my life. So like I'll be at work and I'm like, fuck, there's a lot of super fucking important shit that has to get done in the next five hours, and I legit can't work any more than five hours okay what do i do what's priority one what is the you know if you think of that urgency and importance matrix you know it's it's like four quadrants it's important and urgent those probably get get the attention important but not urgent then it's urgent but not important and then there's not urgent and not important and so you know when you think about that what is like okay obviously like you're probably gonna have to tackle those those urgent important things right away okay knock them out but then, you know, what's the next priority? Maybe that next priority is actually that not urgent but important thing. Okay, go do that. And so, like for me, I have this 
every single day basically i've got this like re revolving to-do list that i'm constantly updating to like what's my number one priority boom knock it off okay what's my next priority boom knock it off what's my next priority boom knock it off okay take a step back okay like that type of prioritizing and executing though it works in combat it also works working at a data analytics company so principle three down we got this priest carry on one last principle then lots of gold decentralized command principle four we've got armed enemy fighters on top of a building appear to be snipers the report was alarming and immediately struck a chord with everyone on the radio net enemy snipers were deadly two different elements of our task unit bruiser seals were out there in enemy territory among a hostile insurgent force with friendly u.s army troops moving in the area jocko's job was to command and control his 30 plus seals and their partner force of iraqi soldiers but the only way he could manage that was to use decentralized command on the battlefield I expected my subordinate leaders to do just that, to lead, to make decisions. I trusted their assessment of the situations they were in and that their decisions would be aggressive in pursuit of mission accomplishment, well thought out and tactically sound. They confirmed this trust over and over. And so what Jock is basically saying is like, you know, he's got this massive fucking problem of he's got 30 SEALs and we'll say like 150 Iraqi soldiers with him. You know, he's ultimately responsible for everything that happens with those people, but there's no way that he could plan every mission, that he could say, go to this building, go to this building, go to this building. No. So what he does is he pushes authority down the chain, and so his you know top four leaders, and then the two below them, they actually run and plan everything, and everybody operates using decentralized command. Jocko had to empower them to lead pushing the decision making down to the subordinate frontline leaders within the task unit was critical to our success this decentralized command structure allowed me as the commander to maintain focus on the bigger picture coordinate friendly assets and to monitor enemy activity were i to get embroiled in the details of the tactical problem there would be no one else to fill my role and manage the strategic mission and this is super sneaky because the tactical problems are way more visible and urgent. So like months could go by and no one really notices that Jocko's like actually planning and executing and doing all the missions. And then that strategic thing just isn't getting done. The proper understanding and utilization of decentralized command takes time and effort to perfect. The skill of decentralized command had not been magically bestowed upon task, task unit bruiser. It had only come through difficult preparation and training, driven home during the months of effort before we deployed to Iraq. So what it's basically just saying is like, it, it didn't come built in, you know? It, it, it's a hard thing that you have to train yourself to do. And they, they practice this through training. You know, the, the leaders would put their subordinates through through training evolutions that like legit, it was impossible to do them unless you passed authority down to your subordinate leaders. So this current operation that he introduced at the beginning um, when he was talking about decentralized command. So there's, you know, 30 SEALs out there, 100 plus Iraqis. There's 
army units in the area and Jock was in charge of command and control. So on this particular operation, Charlie Platoon's pre-planned location actually worked. So like they had a pre-planned location where they were going to go and it worked, but Delta Platoon's didn't. So they, so they say, hey, we're going to go into this building. Oh, fuck, actually, that, that building's made of glass or whatever. Um, so they, they said, hey, Jocko, we're going to move across the street. I responded to him over the radio. This was Jocko. I copy. Do it. Building 94 proved to be a good vantage point. And so that, that team moved to building 94, one of the tallest in the area. Building 94 secure. Overwatch position set in the fourth story and rooftop. So now... That was, you know, that was like part of the mission that there that his teams were doing, setting Overwatch security. So now Charlie and Delta are both in their correct buildings. You know, Delta had to move, but now they're in the correct ones. And hey, we're good to go. Okay, got it. So now everybody, everybody's listening to the same radio, and they hear that report of snipers. Charlie and Delta Platoon, in their separate Overwatch positions, heard the report on their radios and were also amped up by the call. Perhaps one or more of these enemy snipers was, was responsible for shooting their guy. So their guy named Ryan got shot. And so they're like, oh, fuck, snipers. Shit. Yes, we're going to get them. And they had a solution. So uh, there's actually a solution called a tank. So they, they thought they knew where the snipers were. And, uh, you know, that tank, that could sniff out enemy snipers like Flavor Flav could sniff out cocaine. So Jocko's like commanding and controlling this. And so, hey, enemy snipers, fucking tank knows where they are. And basically the army's like, hey, bitch, like, how about we, how about we kill these snipers? And uh, Jocko's like, what, what building are they in? And uh, the tank's like building 79. And it's like, you, you guys don't have any guys in building 79, right? Nope, Jocko says. And the tank says, uh, let's engage. Come on, let's do it. And even the army guy that's Jocko's counterpart's like, let's fucking do it. And uh, Jocko says, hold on. He calls his support, subordinate leader and says, I need you to 1,000% confirm what building you're in. This dude says, I triple checked. It's fucking building 94. I guarantee it. The army leader is like, let's fucking go. We need to kill. And Jocko looks at him. He makes eye contact. He holds his hand up. He takes out his knife and deeply cuts his own hand while bleeding everywhere with fire in his eyes. He calmly explains to this army commander that, that his level of desire to kill the enemy borders on sexual. But he'd pretty, pretty please like them to double check what building the snipers are in. The army guy tells the tank, hey, for final confirmation, count the number of buildings from the intersection where you're located to where you see the enemy snipers. Jocko says it, it should have taken no more than 15 seconds, but 15, 20, 30, a minute, too long. Finally, the silence broke. Correction, the suspected enemy position is in building 94. I say again, we misjudge the distance building 94. Hold your fire. Friendly in building 94. And at that, Jocko holds out his freely bleeding hand to the army commander to shake. The commander looks down at the pool of blood on the ground and Jocko's bloody hand and is like, bro, you honestly want me to shake that? But Jocko just stares back at him stone-faced. So he does. He reluctantly shakes Jocko's hand, mixes blood, and then Jocko smiles, spits on the ground, and does 63 pull-ups. And Jocko brings up this whole fucking thing to illustrate 
that if he was mired in the day-to-day details, if he was planning what building Delta Platoon's going to go to, what building Charlie Platoon's going to go to, like, take, do you need to take this shot, take that shot? Like, there's no way that he would have seen that Tank was wrong and was about to fucking kill his guys. So if he's, he's illustrating this to say because he decentralized, because he let his guys lead, he was able to take a step back and be that tactical genius who's like, hey, count the damn buildings and confirm to me. And they're like, oops, yeah, we were actually about to shoot your guys with a tank. Sorry. Principle, human beings are generally not capable of managing more than six to 10 people, particularly when things go sideways and inevitable contingencies arise. No one senior leader can be expected to manage dozens of individuals, much less hundreds. Teams must be broken down into manageable units of four to five with a clearly designated leader. Those leaders must understand the overall mission and the ultimate goal of that mission, the commander's intent. Then, junior leaders must be empowered to make decisions on key tasks necessary to accomplish that mission in the most effective way. And in doing this, every tactical level team leader must understand not just what to do, but why they are doing it. He basically then like walks through some some tactical differences, like things you got to watch out for of, you know, you don't just, you don't just, here's the hot potato. Like you have to still manage it. You have to still be involved. Delegation without checking is just abdication. But if you want those bigger details, read the damn book. Decentralized command principle four. Well, holy shit. We started with some philosophy. We figured out what's important, what should be wrapped around these laws of combat. Then we moved into the actual laws of combat. Decentralized command, simple. Prioritize and execute and cover and move. If we know those, we're almost there. But we got a couple pro tips, a couple final things that Lord Jocko felt was important enough to include. So goddammit, we're gonna listen. Sustaining victory. You know, this is where this is where just Jocko just sifts through his tactical vest and hands out pieces of gold. So the first thing he's going to learn us up on is planning. Understanding how SEALs plan a combat mission provides techniques that apply across the spectrum. For any team, in any business or industry, it is essential to develop a standardized planning process. What's the mission? Planning begins with mission analysis. Leaders must identify clear directives for the team. Once they themselves understand the mission, they can impart this knowledge to their key leaders and frontline troops tasked with executing the mission. A broad and ambiguous mission results in lack of focus, ineffective execution, and mission creep. So what, that, what that's basically saying is like expectation setting super important. So no matter what you're doing, like, hey, we're, for this week, this is the project we're doing. It's got to be clear. You got you to gotta have a clear directive of what is the mission. The mission must must explain the overall purpose and the desired result. So we're going to do this for this week and get X, the end state of the operation. The frontline troops tasked with executing the mission must understand the deeper purpose behind the mission. We're going to do X for this week and get Y because if we do that, then we can have Z. While the senior leader supervises the entire planning process, the team members must ultimately 
plan the mission and the senior leader must not get too bogged down in the details. Following a successful brief, all members participating in an operation will understand the strategic mission, the commander's intent, the specific mission of the team, and their individual roles within that mission. They will understand contingencies, likely challenges that might arise and how to respond, and everything will be clear. The test for a successful brief is simple. Do the team and supporting elements understand it? So what that's basically saying is, you know, like, and this is so intuitive and obvious, but you could imagine, like, imagine, you know, you, you got five new sales reps and somewhere along the line, part of their job is going to be making cold calls. And so if you're the leader, you know, you can do some big rah-rah thing and say, hey, this week we're kicking it off. We're starting. Here we go. But like, if if the frontline leader doesn't know, if the frontline sales rep doesn't know, like, so does starting mean make cold calls or does starting mean start my script or what? Or like, what are we... What are you supposed to do? So you need to explain the whole mission. You need to explain why, as we've learned. And then, you know, you need to explain each specific thing. So every every conceivable question is answered. Highest level. And now, almost didn't include this, but again, Lord Jocko, I just want to, I just want to chant your name for hours. Um, a leader's checklist for planning should include the following. Analyze the mission. Understand higher headquarters mission. So like, why Am I being told that this is what we need to do? So don't just say like the boss says so. Like why? What's the commander's intent? Identify and state your own commander's intent. So like let's say let's say your boss gives you a mission, but then you have four subordinates. You give them a mission. What is what is your boss's intent? And then what's your intent? Now you have to identify personnel, assets, resources, time available decentralize the planning process so you know you get your four people to mostly come up with a plan and then you tweak the last 20 percent of it mitigate risks delegate portions of the plan stand back be the tactical genius read the damn book but i think the biggest and most important part of this whole like planning section that he's got is the commander's intent and i think the the fact that that's like a doctrinal part of military planning is pretty huge because by having that, that implicitly tells the subordinates, hey, highest level, this is what I'm trying to do. If shit changes, if we need to adjust, do it. Um, but like the commander's intent is basically my, you know, my intention is we grow this department in these two service lines by 50%. That's all that I actually really care about. Now, this is my best guess of how we do that, but I'm open to changing it. But Again, whole lot more on planning, but you're gonna have to do that technique of read the damn book. Okay, keeping handing out gold going, leading up and down the chain. Shortly after task unit bruisers returned to the United States in late October 2006, Jocko was asked to build a presentation for the Chief of Naval Operations, the most senior admiral in the Navy, a member of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a direct advisor to the President. From this map of Ramadi, Jocko built a PowerPoint slide that depicted how the ready first combat team sees, clear, hold, and build strategy systematically through months of effort established a permanent presence in the enemy-held neighborhoods and pushed out the enemy fighters. And this is Leif talking, but when Jocko showed me the slide, it all came together for the first time. And basically, he's just illustrating this whole thing to say like, fuck. You know, if I was the second in command 
of, of, of tasking a bruiser. And I didn't even really understand how our shit fit into the overall strategic mission. And I'm just now seeing that when I look at this damn slide after we've already came back. Like, do I really think that my frontline machine gunners are going to know? They're just like, wah, 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 whatever. But it's actually really important that they do fucking know. And so um, Leif's basically just saying, damn it. I should have done better. I should have led down the chain of command. Um, you know, and Jocko's saying the same thing. Like, I should have communicated better to Leif. Like, it's Jocko's failure that Leif is just now understanding the strategic importance of the mission. Like, after everybody's back and they're doing damn PowerPoint. So, um, leading down the chain is something that has to happen. Looking back, one of the greatest lessons learned for me was that I could have done a far better job of leading down the chain of command. It is paramount that senior leaders explain to their junior leaders and troops executing the mission how their role contributes to big picture success. And so I've listened to the podcast so much that I know this is the example Jocko would bring up. So here we go. Um, Jocko tells a story of he used to go and tell uh, each individual person in the in the unit hey your job's the most important so machine gunner your job's the most important you're providing overwhelming support for the whole team medic your job's most important you're keeping us alive you know sniper your job's most important you're allowing us to fucking do our missions whatever um but that's that's an example of leading down the chain because you know he is letting them know why and how their specific job fits into the greater strategic mission which is ultimately this damn goddamn story of like life's sad because he didn't do that well okay leading up the chain because this this little pro tip is leading up and down the chain so that was down you know you gotta you gotta lead down but then leading up you've got to be kidding me i shouted this is life uh so life is getting just so fucking pissed off about paperwork you know, they had to fill out all this crap and giving dumbass directions and uh, Jocko's being the voice of reason. We are here. We are on the ground. We need to push situational awareness up the chain, Jocko said. If they have questions, it is our fault for not properly communicating the information they need. We have to lead them. They are in charge of us, I question. So, like, the whole thing is Leif is, Leif is like, God damn it, that's the fucking stupidest thing I've ever heard. How much more paperwork do they want me to fill out? And Jocko's like, if they don't understand what we're doing, it's our fault. We have to lead them. But Leif's like, bitch, they're in charge of us. How can we lead them? But this epiphany had come to Jocko in examining his own frustrations up the chain. Leadership doesn't just flow down the chain of command, but up as well. We have to own everything in our world. That's what extreme ownership is all about. And so, totally. Like, if you're somebody subordinate, it's your responsibility to lead up, to communicate up. Like, if they are about to implement a stupid fucking plan because you didn't communicate what you're doing well enough, that's your fault. So each week, to solve this problem each week I do a I do like a weekly report and I spend a bunch of time and I send an email to my boss and I list out all the different things you know during the fucking week I cut my wrist and I fucking bleed into everybody's mouths but at the end I cascade all the information up here's the scalps I took here's a picture of the severed heads but also hey here's the shit that 
like this is gonna be a problem like our crm system sucks this is gonna be a problem or uh, this is stuff i need from you because if i don't get if i don't get my stuff approved it's actually just like my fault for not communicating and then leif says from that day forward we began a campaign of leading up the chain of command we provided extremely detailed mission planning documents and post operational reports and that's it like that's what i'm trying to do where like yeah you can make the argument my job's to make sales but actually my job's to facilitate the system and environment where i can most effectively make sales and so if my boss doesn't know what the fuck's going on that's my fault even if i go make sales i need to take the time to educate them and i just bring this up because i'm such a true fan of the podcast but it's also helpful so like what if you have a micromanager how do you lead up the chain if you have a micromanager and i think on like episode 40 uh jocko answered this question but it squirreled its way into my mind so when he was a radio man he had a micromanager and so he used this as an example to answer the question how do you deal with a micromanager well he would just get ready like seven hours early and you know his he'd get the radios perfectly staged and ready to go seven hours before the operation would start and so you know how many times no matter how micromanagey someone is how many times can a human being say hey did you get this set up did you get this set up did you get this set up did you get this and this and this and this and this and then every time jocko's like got it got it got it got it got it like even 10 times eventually make wow this guy's fucking got it and you so that's just illustrating you've got to lead up the chain if your boss isn't making a decision in a timely manner or providing necessary support for you and your team don't blame the boss blame yourself examine what you can do to better convey the critical information for decisions to be made and support allocated leading up the chain takes much more savvy and skill than leading down the chain but you gotta do it holy shit last best but not least discipline equals freedom one of the most important if not the most important ideas i think i've ever come into contact with so leif talks about this whole example of um you know when they would go in you know they would say hey you got a target where you know you're gonna go capture this guy but if you can't capture him you gotta like search their house for papers and stuff like oh look this is his second address let's go there problem is they didn't have like an organized way to do that so they just ransacked the fucking house every time and so like they would just you know dump over the you know fucking go in the closet and rip the clothes down and flip the beds and like total ransackery and um eventually they're like hey uh gotta make this a little bit more organized and so leif told one of his new guys hey make make a system to do this with less ransackery and more process do it new guy design a plan a couple of days later this new guy presented leif with the plan and leif says at first it appeared complex a possible violation of the simple principle but as he broke it down for me it became clear that each person was assigned a simple task to execute while other members of the assault force conducted other tasks concurrently so at the same time virtually everyone in the entire seal platoon was vehemently against the new plan you know they're all like grizzled old seals and this new guy came up with a plan and they're like when i was a new guy they shaved half my head and eyebrows because i was too handsome you let this guy plan something so leif had to explain listen who here has searched a room 
that has already been searched. Everybody raised their hand. Because, you know, it's just fucking Ryan Zachary. Like, well, I can't tell if this is a messy room or if someone search it. Let's search again. Who here has looked into a messy bedroom on a target and wondered whether or not it has been searched? Everybody raised their hand again. They ended up doing the system and not only were they faster with the new method, the quality of evidence collection vastly improved. You know, it's not just like they got like four socks and an AK-47. Like they did crime scene shit. Like it went way better. Using the previous ransack method, time constraints and the inability to keep track of sloppily stored evidence limited us from hitting multiple targets per night. But with our new discipline method, we could execute raids and complete our searches so quickly that we could now hit two and sometimes three targets in a single night, all while keeping evidence separate and organized. Our freedom to operate and maneuver had increased through discipline. So by having the discipline to have an organized process, they had the freedom to kill more and save America. Discipline equals freedom. Discipline starts every day when the first alarm clock goes off in the morning. I say first because I have three, as I was taught by one of the most feared and respected instructors in SEAL training. One electric, one battery, one wind-up. That way there's no excuse for not getting out of bed, especially with all that rests on that decisive moment. The moment the alarm goes off is the first test. It sets the tone for the rest of the day. The test is not a complex one. When the alarm goes off, beast or bitch, do you get up or do you sleep? Though it seems small, that weakness translates to more significant decisions. But if you exercise discipline, that too translates to more substantial elements of your life. I learned in SEAL training that if I wanted extra time to study the academic material we were given, prepare our room and my uniforms for inspection, or just stretch out aching muscles because Jocko always lifts, I had to make that time because it did not exist on the written schedule. When I checked into my first SEAL team, that practice continued. If I wanted extra time to work on my gear, clean my weapons, study tactics or new technology, I needed to make that time. The only way you could make time was to get up early. That took discipline. Nothing is easy. The temptation to take the easy road is always there. It is as easy as staying in bed in the morning and sleeping in. But discipline is paramount to ultimate success and victory for any leader and team. Although discipline demands control and asceticism, it actually results in freedom. When you, have the, when you have the discipline to get up early, you are rewarded with more free time. When you have the discipline to keep your helmet and body armor on in the field, you become accustomed to it and can move freely in it. I realized very quickly that discipline was not only the most important quality for an individual, but also for a team. The more disciplined standard operating procedures a team employs, the more freedom they have to practice decentralized command and thus execute faster, sharper, and more effectively. Just as an individual excels when he or she exercises, exercises self-discipline, a unit that has a tighter and more disciplined procedure and process will usually win. <sighs> Holy shit, priest. And there we are. Extreme Ownership. That book, stacked with the Jocko Podcast, that right there is 50% responsible for any success I've had in my life over the past seven years. All the material in the book 
reinforced by hearing you know his perspective just straight from lord jocko's mouth straight fucking life-changing i remember shivering colder than i've ever been and still getting colder because i had hours left on the deer hunt muttering to myself discipline equals freedom I remember reading Extreme Ownership when I worked a job I hated, but just having my chest up, my head out, and crushing it, despite the revulsion I felt from wearing suits and interacting with people who played golf. And I remember the countless examples of times both in this book and on the podcast where Jocko and Leif just set the fucking standard. Wake up calls at 4.30 retiring from the military but crushing it still harder than before, and ultimately being kusemonos to a level that Yamamoto Tsunotomo would give them the head nod. So as we go out into the world, we will encounter challenges. But if we keep it simple, if we prioritize and execute, if we decentralize and trust our people, and if we cover and move, we might, maybe, just maybe join lord jocko on the path the path to victory thank you thank you very much and that's my pretties is another episode down of the curiously disagreeable podcast check us out at curiouslydisagreeable.com the troy hollings on instagram or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts the end